Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me as always is my producer, Kevin Black. A little overdue for a return spot on my podcast, although I feel like we, we do generally alternate if he's on my show or I'm on his show, but we got to give the people what they want. The general public loves when this man and I get together to do podcasts because usually we come in with a schedule, we come in with a set plan on how we want to record the show, and then we just start rambling about God knows what in the, in the realm of basketball. And usually when we do that rambling, we talk about a lot of cool shit in that rambling and it becomes a fantastic show whether it's on mine or on his but chuck from chucking darts welcome back my friend how you doing i'm doing great man we've got chemistry you can't deny it we I, do I'm have chemistry it. yeah it's fun it's fun if we can't you know ramble into you know silly digressions about whatever and then still feel like we covered some good ground why even have a podcast isn't that the point that's that's 100% the point, and I'm so glad that you agreed to come on tonight because, and I said this on my outro on the last podcast that I just did with Mr. Tyler Rucker, where we review my Monday morning column each week, mm-hmm. but when I have questions about a prospect and I can't figure something out, and I know that you've been talking about some of these guys, you've been high on some of these guys, I'm going to go to you, Chuck. I trust your scouting opinion. You do incredible work yourself. Your show is always a great listen. And you've just become one of those quote-unquote trusted sources that I have in this draft order space. So I can't wait to dig in on some of these guys, especially the very first guy that we'll talk about. But are, are you ready to, to, to do some deep dives here with me? <laughs> with those expectations set nice and high, yes, I'm ready. Let's go. All right, so first and foremost, we, we got to start off with Mr. Tari Eason out of LSU has made waves in the draft community, certainly has exploded on draft Twitter. I don't know. I don't know, Chuck, and you might have the answer. I don't know if you were the first to talk about him on the draft Twitter space in like podcast form. But I feel like you were because once you did that podcast, he just exploded onto the scene out of nowhere. And I'm like, who the hell is Tari Eason? Like he wasn't even on my preseason watch list. He wasn't a part of like a preseason top 100 for me. And fair enough. I mean, he was a transfer from Cincinnati. So he was playing in the American Conference, the American Conference outside of Memphis. You know, I, I would love to say that my Temple Owls make noise in the American Conference. They, they happen for quite a while. But generally outside of Memphis, you're usually not seeing a lot of prospect buzz in that conference. So, well enough, it, 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 was, it was a little easier for him to fly under the radar, I suppose, than some other prospects in these more power conferences. But he gets to LSU. He's not even starting for LSU. He's coming off the bench. But you can't deny the production that he's putting up. And I think that was one of your points, Chuck, and I'll let you get into some of the numbers as well. But, I mean, just some of the general stats, 15.6 points per game, 7.3 rebounds. Again, all off the bench, a steal and a half per game, 1.4 blocks per game, a 32.4 PER, and a 60 true shooting percentage, 83rd percentile in total offense, 88th in transition scoring. This guy is, I I won't call him a freak athlete, but he's a very functional athlete. 
He is certainly exciting, especially on the defensive end. I just want to kick it to you first, Chuck, because this was a guy that you certainly brought to my attention. What specifically brought him to your attention and why did you want to go about talking about him the way that you have done on previous podcasts? Uh, well, thank you very much for the intro. Uh, I'll say that I don't know that I was the first to talk about him because the people who, I mean, what led me to him is I think what led to a couple others before me to him, which is, uh, his advanced stats. And I'm, I, I want to sidestep the, the eye test versus, you know, numbers, endless, you know, civil war that's going to last for <laughs> 10,000 years. Um, but Scouting is a, it is a numbers game, both in terms of what stats you choose to look at and in the sheer volume of prospects. So if there's a way to find someone who pops out, um, then it's only, it only makes sense to at least pay attention to him. And Tari has always popped. When he was at Cincinnati last year, the, the thing that really sticks out about him are his steal and block rates. That was the case last year in Cincinnati, and that is the case this year at LSU. You know, he, I think I said it on the episode you're referencing, which was with, um, uh, pardon me, Will Morris, who's a, a, a very good analyst who uh, is on Twitter as well. But um, he, he has the steal rate of like a very, very good first round caliber or top 20 caliber NBA guard prospect and he has the block rate of a solid like big prospect and so if you can combine those two areas which are traditionally associated with you know being a specialist at your position but you combine them then you have a very interesting player and um you know for reference like Keegan Murray has similar steal and block numbers. He he goes about it a different way than Tari does, and we can get into that. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's just sort of across the board production. I I am not a guy who follows like BPM. I know it stands for box score plus minus. I don't know how that's calculated. I I tend to try to stay within traditional box score stuff, but that is. Um, that is looked at sort of very specifically and being able to compare not just gross numbers, but percentages. Um, and Tari just has across the board production. And I think if you do follow box score plus minus, if that is your thing, he is one of the top like five players in the country with that. And that is because he, he fills it up points, boards, steals, blocks, and some assists. We can talk about his passing too, but yes, that's yeah. that's a very good point to make about that as well. Yep. Yeah. So I like that. That's what first led me to him. Um, and when I watched him, I you hit on it already. Is that he came off of LSU's bench, Tari, and I'm not sure if he came off of Cincinnati's bench last year, off the top of my head. But it, it it's not the plan at LSU for him to be their best player. But he is it, like it was not in the cards for him to be closing games and for him to be getting on ball reps in close games for a team that is now, I believe, 13 and one and just beat Kentucky. But he does. And so if you if you have all of these sort of green flags in terms of his statistical production and, you know, most of those green flags are defensive. And then on offense, you you see how the team sort of understands 
that he, he that he just sort of sees the game the best, that he processes it the best, uh, that he can sort of get to the rim uh, in in tough moments in a one-on-one matchup. You know, mm-hmm. LSU likes to leverage their athletic strengths in, in one-on-one matchups, not only late in games, but early in games too. When you see how him sort of claim that status on his team, um, it, it just it it just means that he is, you know, he's probably the best player on a team that's going to be a top fifteen team in the country, and that alone should put him on people's watch lists as someone who's an underclassman. So it's 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 sort of it was the advanced stats that that led me to him, but the eye test does mean a lot. There is a lot to to pour through on on his film so in terms of his defense i don't know how much time i specifically want to spend on his defense but i will let you point out some of the positives chuck i'll ask you for your opinion in a second i mean you flip on the tape it's very obvious how disruptive of a defender he is like you point out the steal the steal rate the block rate those numbers aren't just coming (laughs) completely out of nowhere like within two minutes of just flipping on his tape He's probably deflecting a pass and he's going down the other end of the court. He's finishing a transition like that. That is how gifted of a takeaway artist Tari Eason is. And to his credit, I love guys like that. I love I love guys who force turnovers to essentially get out in transition to swing easy buckets for his team, put easy points on the board. I love that. I'm not sure I love everything about his one-on-one defense, and I know that defensive metrics are never going to be perfect, um, but that is really what drags down his rating on synergy, his defensive rating. He's in the fifth percentile in terms of defending in isolation. And mechanically, I don't don't love his approach to one-on-one defending either. I think sometimes he gets a little physically aggressive. That's when he can get himself in a little bit of foul trouble. He's not perfect on that end, but in terms of playing off the ball, playing passing lanes, keeping his head up, knowing what's going on around him, and then doing something about it before the offense can even double back and try to make up for their mistake. That's really what I love about Tari. That's what bears itself out in the numbers. What are your thoughts about his defense before we get into the offense? I think I I, I don't differ really from you. And, you know, Tari plays – your textbook defense that you're going to want, you know, a forward or a, a guard to play as a coach, you know, starting at young levels probably revolves around doing your job and not really getting beat. You don't want to hang the rest of your defense out to dry. Tari is one of the very special uh, players intellectually on the court that um, he he gambles intelligently, like all the time. His antenna yeah. are always up. So no matter what his primary um, assignment is, and it can be a guard or a big, like, for example, last night against Kentucky, he, he guarded Oscar uh, Shibwe, who, who's, you know, as big as a big gets. He's always going to be looking at where the ball is going, how the play is unfolding, if there's an opportunity to shoot a passing lane that is, you know, far away from his responsibility um, and if he is on ball, then he's going to be looking at his assignments handle. How good a dribbler are they? Are they now sort of not paying attention to their handle and can I poke it free? Um, and as a shot blocker, whether it's someone driving on him, he might, you know, seed some ground and, and provide an angle to the hoop that would not be textbook, but it's because he wants to create an angle 
for himself to contest over the side. You know, it's like I said, it's not stuff you would necessarily teach, but it's a little, um, I wouldn't say like it's entirely reminiscent of Matisse Thibel because no one's really like that advanced other than Thibel in terms of how he gambles and how he plays the ball. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's the same sort of family and ballpark. He, he is smart enough to understand how a play is going to unfold, where the ball is likely to go based on um, what action is in front of him. And he sort of just operates off of that. And, Ordinarily, you would say, okay, well, we're going to have to scale that back because that can, you know, leave your team out to dry. But look at LSU's defense. You know, it's one of the top five in the country and they play Tari all of the important minutes and they keep winning games. So if from like the old school scouting perspective, like, and I, and I don't mean to simplify an old school scouting perspective, but you want, <laughs> I'm just saying you want guys who are contributing to winning at yes. the college level. And it's, it's abundantly clear that Tari is doing that. Whether you're coming at it from a statistical perspective or an eye test, he's on the court when it matters and he makes like winning plays. It may be a different definition of winning play than um, sort of like a four by four traditional coach defines it, but wins are what matters at the end of the day. And Tari is a winning guy. No, I mean, that LSU team is incredibly fun to watch. I did watch that Kentucky game last night, and Tari certainly had enough moments in that game, and he was struggling offensively at the beginning of the game and through the first half, but then in the second half, he really found his groove. He was finishing and ones. He was really taking over as the leader on that team. I agree with you 100%. Whether we, we can have certain qualms and disagreements about how good of an NBA prospect he is, but there's zero questioning that he is he is their best player this year by a country mile. And that's what's really remarkable about it as well. They, they don't have a lot of other traditional blue chippers on that team. Um, but but Tari, Tari is their guy. He's certainly playing like one. So you have to give him his flowers. Now, offensively, Chuck, this is where I have the questions. And... I'm very curious to get some of your takes on his overall offensive capabilities. He is clearly a slasher. He's a power player. He does a lot of his damage, as you pointed out. I know one of the things that you love to look up, you said this last year, was how often a player is actually dunking the basketball, because usually that's a very good indicator of plus athletic talent, which there's no questioning how vertical of an athlete he is, how good of an athlete he is overall. He dunks the ball like crazy, and he finishes inside. That's his game. I don't love his touch like 10 feet and out from the basket. I don't love the shooting mechanics. The, the, the numbers clearly say to not trust his outside shot up to this point, but I'm just not buying it from an eye test perspective. But even his finishing, when I, I've, I've watched about five – LSU games. He was one of the main players I wanted to key in on when I had some time off from from work for the holidays. I watched about five LSU games. He he scores a lot of buckets when it's either he's either completely by himself, right, or he's able to score over someone who is clearly smaller than him and not on his level athletically. When he goes up against someone who is sized like him, similar size, similar stature, and similar th- similar athletic ability, he is not 
he doesn't have that touch that you're generally looking for from a slasher. It, like if you're going to be almost exclusively a finisher, you have to be borderline elite at it. And the raw numbers would say that he is as a two point shot maker. But when you actually look at how he's getting those buckets, it's not necessarily telling me that he is elite in that category. So really that that's the one thing that really gives me cause to pause. It's not, it's not just that he can't knock down shots from the outside. Not everybody's a jump shooter. If you're really good at doing damage inside the arc, those players thrive all over the place in the NBA. But is he actually that good of a finisher, Chuck? What are some of your thoughts on his package inside the arc? Uh, I'd, I'd agree that it's his main question. I, I I think that, you know, the numbers bear that out. And I also don't love his his shot mechanics. Now, in his defense, he shoots, uh, he's shooting 79% from the line, yep. which it is always encouraging for some, you know, and we haven't even said yet, Tari is like 6'8 with a seven foot question mark wingspan. Who knows how long that kid's arms are, but it, he might be in like the 7'3 Scotty Barnes-ish category, but we won't know until really the combine. Um, but he shoots 79% from the line and not only does he not have sort of an advanced bag of tricks, like you won't really see him get to like a mid range pull up too often, you know, let alone much success from distance, which I believe he's shooting, you know, 27% from. He does um, try to get to a floater though. That, that is something that, that he does at least attempt. And, and it generally, it, it looks good coming off his fingertips. It just, it doesn't go in a ton, but he at least is comfortable doing that. that that's what I'm saying. And like, I, I'm always wary of endorsing a prospect offensively who is very reliant on the floater because in the NBA, if you're going to be relying on the floater, you have to be, you know, Rashawn Holmes or you need to be Brandon Clark. And I think Clark is one of the guys I compared him to um, on my podcast. But if you want that to be your bread and butter, it, I mean, it's got to be like truly elite. Yeah. And that, that's an overused word, but it really does. And so I, I don't know that I see that from him. The thing about um, the situation at LSU is that uh, LSU and Will Wade, is that their coach? I want to make sure yes. I get that right. Yeah. But it was the same deal last year when they were a good team, a tournament team. They're going to be a tournament team again this year. They recruit uh, very athletic players. Yes. And their offense is not the most, you know, sophisticated from an X's and O's perspective. You know, they, it's a lot of ISO. It's a lot of, you know, trying to find some matchup where you have the athletic edge so you can get two feet in the paint and collapse the defense. And, it's not really much different this year. And I mentioned earlier about how Tari has gotten these sort of crunch time reps on the ball. And that's because there isn't a whole lot of script to do things elsewhere. You know, yep. in the NBA, he's not going to play on an offense like that. And my hope for him is that whatever offense he plays in the NBA will be able to leverage once again, what I think is his very best asset, which is his mind. Yes. Um, he has a very good sense for cutting. Uh, and the same way he reads plays defensively and understands when to gamble and has the physical attributes to pull it off. On offense, he understands uh, how and when the defense is going to vacate space for him to fill. And 
that's why, you know, his two point numbers are where they are and why he already has, you know, 25 dunks or whatever he has because he's very opportunistic about filling that space. Um, now that doesn't mean that he's going to be a, like a, an above average NBA offensive player. The, the, the pitch for Tari is that he does enough to survive on offense and that on defense, that's where, you know, his best skills really, really come out to shine. Um, I'll admit that it's not like an airtight case. And I think the guys, in addition to Clark that I compared him to are more rotational wings just because the NBA is filled with so much offensive talent that um, unless you can really, really, really play make, and we can talk about that with Tari too, um, you either have to shoot or you're kind of like a bench guy. So it might be that Tari's a bench guy. I just think it's very clear that he's an NBA player. I, I don't think that you can keep um, someone with his athleticism and his reads and his mind at his position, which is 6'8 with a 7-plus wingspan and, like, real lateral quickness. I don't think you keep that guy out of the NBA. And in this draft, I mean, this draft is more... It's not last year's draft, which was historic. <laughs> it's more the draft where you you sort of go in understanding that there's probably going to be 25 guys who, who carve out meaningful NBA careers. And to me, Tari is just very obviously one of them. So if someone wants to yeah. has, have him 25, then fine. Like I have him a little bit higher, but it just means that you shouldn't have him any lower than that. There's no real reason to have him 37th because there's not 36 better NBA prospects in the country. So, there are absolutely a few different points that I'm going to spin off of what you just said, which was all fantastic information, Chuck. But I, I think because you, you talked about it last, that's where my mind wants to go initially, is that this draft, Tari Eason, if he declares and comes out, which I think we would expect him to at this point, he is going to have the luxury of being in a draft where I don't know if I definitively come out and say that this draft couldn't necessarily get to the point of depth as some of the previous years that we've had, but you are going to be taking much more calculated gambles in this draft than you would have been in previous years. There are a lot of underperforming talents when you compare where they're at now to initial preseason projections, and that leaves plenty of room for some of these upperclassmen, which I know you just did that fantastic pod with coach Adam Spinella talking about some of the sophomores on the rise, which that would include Tari that leaves the door open for some of these guys to get drafted higher than maybe they would in more loaded years. And that's why I thought it was important to think through some of the questions with Tari before we just wanted to overly come out, say the positive Sarah had him ranked, et cetera. Cause those really were the questions that I had about him offensively. I'm glad that you and I are kind of, in the same boat there, but you did say, and I'm glad that you said it, the best attribute about him is his mind, because I 100% agree. It's not, it's not just the passing. It's not just that he recognizes when he has an angle and when it's the right decision for him to pass it. And then he actually does it. It's not just that foundational decision-making. It, it goes it goes even a level I shouldn't say foundational because it, it does go a level deeper than that. It's I love players who look to attack a defense initially, but if they recognize that it's not the right move to keep going and force something, 
I love the guys who will pull the ball back out and try and reset themselves and reset the offense a little bit. That was one of the reasons you and I talked about at length when we went in on Jared Butler and we we spent mm-hmm. the the countless minutes and and I, I guess I could technically say hours. I really could say hours. We spent a shit ton of time talking about Jared Butler, but that was one of the things I loved about him. It was that he was smart enough to understand where he was at as a player. He's not the quickest guy in the world. I, I know that the the handles are completely different part of the story, but he's he wasn't the best athlete coming in, but he recognized which battles he was going to fight and which he probably shouldn't. And I see a lot of the same things from Tari. And that combined with his passing recognition and his ability to deliver the ball and actually drop dimes, not just move it, but actually pass a guy into what when that ends up becoming an assist. It's when you put all of that together, that's what gives me optimism about his offensive fit in the NBA, if he continues to have that level of recognition and that level of self-awareness, then a player with the question marks that he has can succeed. I'm, I'm assuming that you'd be in agreement with everything I just said. Absolutely. Yeah. And his um, passing again, he doesn't have a lot of uh, guys around him that are cutting you know in this beautiful synchronized set that the coach has drawn up over and over that really warps a defense that can lead to bigger passing windows so he doesn't have ridiculous assist numbers i mean in in a in an iso heavy offense assist numbers go down you know they tend to so again in the nba if there is a more um if there's more of sort of a flow offense where he's around other guys that um, are really executing a scheme designed to get players open, like a really successful one, and if he gets drafted in the back half of the first round, that's more likely, then I think you'll see um, his passing like reach another level of success. And it's, you know... He doesn't have like the greatest handle. It's it's something that's still developing and something that, again, yeah. I don't really think that LSU is going to help, which is why is another reason why he should declare this year and just get into an NBA system. Yeah. But in the NBA, he's going to be receiving the ball already against a, a tilted defense. And so if he knows to attack a closeout, which he will, because aggressiveness is, is not a weakness of his. Yeah. Um, then he'll have, you know, more space. His vision will play up. He'll have nice big passing windows to either drop it off to the big or kick it out to the corner. He can already do both of those things. He has good body control on drive, so he's not going to get a ton of charges called on him. Um, and if there's an opportunity to finish, then he'll finish. It's it's really just a matter of how shooting starved the team is that takes him. Because if they are, then he's going to be a bench player for a while. But if they're not, if they're someone like the Timberwolves who can accommodate a talent like Jared Vanderbilt in their starting lineup, then Tari will have a chance before long to to make his mark there. That would be my my prediction for him. Do you have a comparison for him? Because I, if you do, I would certainly like for you to go first. But I actually do have a comparison for him, and that's why I have him ranked currently on my board where I do. But I'm curious if you have a comp for him. Um, I don't have a comp for him really in terms of his precise skill set. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll seed it to you. The comps I threw out on my podcast, which are not, again, they're not skill comps, are um, 
were Obi Toppin, Jared Vanderbilt, and Brandon Clark. And that's in talking about guys who have big wing, wing size, but you know, aren't really going to play the three. They're going to be closer to hybrid four fives. You know, they have some ball skills and they are mostly play finishers. Um, but they can win the minutes that they're out on the court. Um, and in Vanderbilt's case, he's a starter. Yeah. But, you know, Brandon Clark is an extremely efficient, smart, you know, functional athlete who also had um, a great, uh, intellectual pedigree coming into the league and he he is now I think the last three games he's playing like 25 minutes a night and shooting 70% for the field for you know the Grizzlies who are going to be a top oh, I love, I, dude I, I love Brandon Clark like if, yeah. listen, if you could tell me that Tarisa was going to be like Brandon Clark in the league like that's the role he was going to be able to play like absolutely sign me up like I love Brandon Clark yeah. So, I mean, and he's not as quite as explosive as Brandon is, so I won't quite go there, but I can just, I can see him playing 20 to 25 minutes a night um, and just being better than whatever bench unit he's going up against and him really playing a sort of hybrid play finisher and connector role on offense and taking advantage of uh, NBA bench unit offenses that maybe are a little bit clunkier or are still working some stuff out and juicing those turnovers and getting out in transition and then really giving his team like a real advantage. But as far as a one-to-one -one comp, I, I don't have someone. Who do you have? So obviously we, you and I are smart enough to know the comparisons can never quite be one-to-one, -one, but very closely in terms of measurable impact, this player came into my head and I'm like, no, I'm like, is, is this, is this borderline crazy? Cause I think Tari's a better athlete than this guy is. Although this guy was a, an underrated athlete coming into the NBA. I remember watching him like years and years ago and I'm like, holy shit, this dude's awesome. But James Johnson came into my head. Ooh. And so when you go, it gets even weirder when you go back and look at the numbers. <laughs> so James Johnson was also a, a two year player who came into the draft. His second year at Wake Forest, so Tari Easton's currently averaging 15.6 points, 7.3 rebounds, and one assist. James Johnson was 14.8 points, 8.3 rebounds, 1.6 assists. Tari Eason is averaging 1.5 steals, 1.4 blocks. James Johnson is averaging 1.4 steals, 1.5 blocks. And their shooting numbers are also very similar to each other. When you talk about the level of impact and how they actually play the game, James Johnson is another one of those guys. His, his scoring is primarily coming off of just finishing easy things within mm -hmm. the offense. But James Johnson also has some of that passing ability, which he's been able to tap into later in his career. Um, so very, very similar, very functional to how Tari's passing works as well. So I got that comp in my head, and I couldn't let it go. And I'm like – and James Johnson, so you've also mentioned multiple times on social media, like you think that Tari should be considered as a lottery-level, potentially lottery-level prospect in this draft. James Johnson, albeit years ago, different class, he was drafted 16th. So then I sat back and I was like, if James Johnson went 16th in his class, and I think that there's a shot that Tari could be better than him, better than somebody who is still playing basketball today, he came into the league in 09, so he's had like a 12-year career up to this point, 
And that's the kind of career that we think Tari Eason could have in the league. He could have maybe not the flashes of careers, but a lengthy, a meaningful one. Why do I not have him inside my top 20? And that's when I had to cede it to you, Chuck. I'm like, I'm not going to fight this battle with myself anymore. I'm going to rank Tari in 19. I'm going to leave him here for now. And we're going to see what happens. But especially in this class where after like 12, for me, I don't know if this is going to be the same way for you all year, but like after 12, 13, or 14 for me, it's going to be about who's producing at the most consistent level. And that's really how I'm going to end up measuring these guys because there's a whole catalog of guys like 15 through 50 where you can make some sort of argument to their upside about why they could work in the league. But when we're talking about drafting them this year in this class, that's what it's going to come down to for me. And that's why I kind of, I I have to, I have to see the fight. I have to have Tari Eason in my top 20. And some people were kind of, messaging me to today when I was talking with, with with some of the other guys and some other people and they're like so you did come around on Tari and I'm here on this podcast saying exactly why I came around on what do you think about the James Johnson name I I mean I, I love it I mean I would have to look at more James Johnson film to, to sure. come up with a skill comp but the case you laid out is fantastic first of all because it gives me an excuse to talk about that uh wake forest team which is one of the it's like a trivia question that wake team which i believe reached number one in the country um like faded down the stretch i think lost in the first round of the ncaa tournament but randomly sent four players from its starting five to the nba all of whom had 10-year careers and and you will not like that doesn't happen for like was that was that the al farouk aminu team as it was well. Aminu, Jeff yep. Teague, James Johnson, and Ish Smith. Who and I've also I've also heard the Aminu name for him too, but yeah, I, I kind of like the James Johnson name more. No, I, I like it too because um, Aminu was like the blue chipper on that team. He was the whatever yep. the top ten recruit or whatever. Yep. And the rest of those guys um, have all well outperformed what scouts thought of them at the time. And Johnson, much like Tari. Um, he was not a priority going into that year on that team. And as you pointed out, you know, most of his offensive contributions were as a play finisher, but Johnson was a couple years ahead of his time in, in how, uh, fluid and powerful an athlete he was at six foot eight in his ability to guard multiple positions. Yeah. Uh, and that's where the, the comp for Tari is. Tari isn't like. I feel like Johnson was physically maybe had a, a wider frame, might have had, you know, some wider shoulders or something than Tari does. Um, and so maybe is a bit more of a power guy. And Johnson also kind of notoriously has a like an extensive martial arts background. And so he was, you know, un, um, uncommonly coordinated and had all of this body control from that background in his game. And I think Tari's good on that level. That that might be like a bit of a distinction between the two, but I think that sure. Tari has a, a better feel than Johnson did coming out. And so in terms of, yeah, carving out a career where he can, and Johnson like has vacillated between starter and uh, bench player through his career. He got one big contract from the Heat, which I think was for like 60 plus million dollars. Yeah, I could see, I, I could definitely see a similar career path for Tari. I think that's a very good one. I'm I'm usually 
horrible when it comes to very specific comps like that, like career type of comps. But I, I'm going to pat myself on the back a little bit. I was, I was pretty pleased with that one. It all kind of just clicked, and I was like, damn, I, I, I got to put this on a podcast somewhere. But <laughs> so let's talk about the next guy that we had picked down the list. Another guy that I have some questions about. Not to where I don't necessarily like the player that I didn't like the player at any point. Dyson Daniels, currently mm-hmm. playing for the G League Ignite, just wrote about him in my column this past week. 11.3 points per game, 6.1 rebounds, 4.5 assists, 45% from the field, 25.5 from three, almost 74 from the free throw line. Not terrible shooting splits, almost two steals per game and to 2.4 turnovers per game. So almost a two-to-one assist-to-turnover ratio when he's essentially playing a role that's completely outside of what I feel that he's going to play in the NBA. He's likely not going to be a primary initiator, a a de facto point guard for an NBA team, but that's really what he has to be for Ignite because they don't have anybody else who's essentially capable of, of, of doing that to as high level of a degree as Daniels is. They have some other veteran point guards on that team who have been around for a while, like Jeter, et cetera. But Daniels is clearly their, their best choice to run the offense at this current moment in time. And he, 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 does, he does a decent to good job with it. I don't hate anything he's doing from a, a passing or a playmaking perspective. I like how he operates out of pick and roll. I'm not questioning his... IQ and intelligence at all, but I am questioning that damn shot. I do not like that. I, I do not like that shot. I, every single time I watch it, I can, I, I literally mutter to my monitor. I'm like, Oh, this is going to be a brick, 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 brick. And almost every, almost every time I say that it's a damn brick. And I, I, I don't know, man. Like I've heard some people throw like the Halliburton name, around for Daniels in terms of like the, the type of connector impact player he could be at the NBA. But for all that we wanted to question myself included, those funky shot mechanics that Halliburton has, that ball goes through the net and Mm -hmm. it's still going through the net to this day. He has shot off the catch. He's shot off movement. He's created like one, two dribble pull-ups out of pick and roll. He is making shots at a level that, I did not know that he was capable of from all of these different types. I don't see that same path for Daniels because I just I I cannot buy the shot mechanics. I don't know where you're at on his shooting. I don't know where you're at on Daniels' scoring approach overall. Maybe I just need to have him in the lottery because he is that good of a defensive prospect, which I'm sure you're going to talk about, Chuck. He is probably the best one through three defender that we have near the top of this draft class. Maybe I should just let that end of the floor sell me more. I have him just outside the lottery. So again, I'm I'm not I'm not low. I don't feel I'm low on him, but there are certainly people on draft Twitter who are higher on him than I am. And I know that I, I don't know how much you love him, Chuck. I'll I'll, I'll get your answer in a second, but I, I think you at least like him more than I do. So do your best. Sell me this pen quoting Corey Tulliba on, on Dyson Daniels and why maybe if I should buy the offense a little more. He's not, he's not a pen. He's, he's gold. <laughs> Are you kidding? No. Um, it's a separate discussion on that movie. Um, I have him a little bit higher. I think I have him 13th, but my, 
that tier, you mentioned that after like 12, 13, 14, you can make an argument for just about anyone. For me, yeah. it's really after 11. I have 11 guys who I feel like good about um, as being the top 11. And then it opens up a little bit. So Daniels, um, the defense that you mentioned, I'll start there. Because I, I agree yeah. there are issues with the shot. I'm more optimistic than you on it, but there are certainly issues. Um, he defends at the point of attack a lot. He's six six with a very good wingspan. Yeah. Um, and he, like Tari, processes the game very well. He uh, is not. He he doesn't like sell out as an on ball guy. He will fight over screens, and then if his guy sort of leaks out to the corner, he'll turn his head and see if he you know needs to help on some pick and roll going to the middle of the floor, and he'll make plays doing that. You know, in addition to those two steals, he also has nearly a block a game as a point of attack. You know, above the break guard defender. Yeah which you normally don't see. And that speaks to how he is constantly putting himself in situations to get deflections. Uh, he is active as a rebounder. He'll, you know, make sure that he puts himself in position to do that. And he doesn't, he doesn't play. Um, there, I can say he plays unselfishly and it'll make it seem like I am really trying to sell you on him. There are, there are limits to unselfishness, just like there are limits to selfishness. Yeah. The question with Tari is that he, pardon me, not Tari, Dyson. The, the question with Dyson is how he, how aggressive he is going to be as an offensive player. So I won't, I'm going to leave Halliburton out of this because Halliburton was always very aggressive as an offensive player. As soon as he got the reins at Iowa State, like you could see that mm -hmm. he could run an entire game and had no problem doing that. Um. This isn't a, a direct comp for Dyson because they're different types of athletes. But if you looked at Isaac Okoro coming into the draft, uh, did I say Tari again? I got to stop thinking about Tari. Um, <laughs> I know you want to talk about Tarison for like two hours, Chuck, but we can't, we can't do it. But if you looked at Isaac Okoro coming in the draft at Auburn, you know, he was this electric athlete, really good finisher. You could see that he had passing acumen off the drive. Um, but he was a reluctant spot up jump shooter, even though teams were, you know, conceding him that space and he would do it sometimes, but it, it really wasn't in his nature and what has dogged him early in his career, although he really started to put it together before he got nicked up a couple weeks ago, it was that he would, he would just pass up these shots and take two dribbles and then just kind of kick it back out on the strong side and, allow the defense to reset. And it was sort of, he was hiding his own gifts. Um, Dyson already kind of does that, even though he is nominally the, the primary guard on that Ignite team. Now, when Scoot Henderson comes in, then Dyson plays off of Scoot. Yeah. But since Scoot comes off the bench, you know, Dyson brings the ball up and has Jaden Hardy playing off of him. What encourages me, like that is something Dyson is going to have to improve. He is going to have to get more aggressive um, looking for his own offense because and the NBA doesn't wait around. You can you can make all the hustle plays you want, but if you don't threaten a defense with your ability to score, then they'll ignore you and you're doing them a favor. I think that a lot of this, a lot of his reticence 
or his perceived passiveness uh, for the Ignite has to do with the fact that he is he is trying to sort of execute the sets that they have practiced and what they've been coached on. And so normally in the G League, it's like, it's literally a showcase for guys to, to show teams everything that they can do with the ball. And, you know, they're trying to earn, uh, you know, two ways and you yeah. know, fully guaranteed deals. So they're putting like the whole bag on display all the time. Dyson is a bit more clinical, and my buddy Draft Pal wrote an article about him preseason that we talked yeah. about on my podcast about how he really grew up as a as a textbook player, and he you know his rotations are on time and his passes are crisp and he knows where the ball's supposed to go in a given set, but he hadn't really tapped into his creativity until just recently. I think we're still seeing that process play out. I, I'm optimistic on it because there are flashes. You know, he he can take guys off the dribble. He likes to go to a spin move uh, in the lane. He, I haven't really seen him take much off the dribble from three, but he has very good um, floater touch. And again, I don't think the floater should be his bread and butter, but almost more than free throw shooting, if someone has real touch around the rim, and uh, he's done that both in getting floaters for himself and getting offensive rebounds or for being in the dunker spot and then putting it back up. It just, it looks soft and it looks um, pretty good coming out of his hand. And so I think that his jumper, which is slow right now, and it has a little bit of a push shot to it, especially later in games as he sort of gets tired, I think with some added strength, which he projects to put on, that can clean up a little bit and he can lean into the touch that he shows in the lane. Um, it's worth noting that his he turns um, 19, or pardon me, yeah, he turns 19 on St. Patrick's Day. So he is an 18-year-old playing in the G League. And that yeah. is, you know... I think there's a real interesting discussion about age and when it matters and when it doesn't matter. To me, with Dyson, um, he he knows how to play. Like he clearly processes the game well. Otherwise, he wouldn't have these duties and be putting up, you know, the rebound, assist, steal, and block numbers that he is. It's it's all about his body sort of catching up and the flip switching to to hunt his offense a little more. That is stuff that I think age can take care of. I think that you can gain physical confidence in yourself and you can gain confidence in different aspects of your game as you get older. I don't think that at age 18 in this league where he's playing around grown men and he's trying to you know, accommodate these other prospects on his team, I don't think that that necessarily means that that's the player he's going to be in the NBA. It might take a couple years, but if you look at intersection of feel and sort of across the board production age and size because again six six good wingspan um then i think again i think he's just a very good bet to be a an nba player for a long time um but as far as the shot man i i see the same things you do i might be overrating that touch a little i might be he takes so long to get into it man yeah to actually get that puppy up it's long it's long, and I part of me thinks it's long because he even like he, he seems unsure whether he that, wants that's to. What, shoot that's it or what not. I'm saying. Like yep. mentally, he's like, "Is there a pass I can make right now 
yeah. is the shot the best thing? Like it's almost as though he thinks of his shot as the last resort. Mm-hmm. So I there's work to be done there. But again, that's work that I think teams can be can be patient on. Now, a team that wants to draft someone who, you know, contributes immediately, like Chris Duarte or something, they're going to pass on Dyson, and that's fine. But the, hopefully a team that takes, an, a, you know, a fresh 19-year-old will understand that they're going to have to be patient with him. So, so well, I'm, I'm glad you pointed out the age. And, and my thing with the G League Ignite program is that it should not be the death nail in the coffin, like... I, I have issues with Jaden Hardy and his his underperformance because of visually some of the things that I'm seeing on tape, not just because he's not putting up astronomical numbers at these efficient rates in, in the G League. It's, it's okay that he's struggling against other players who are much older than him, more physically mature than him, who, as you mentioned, they're fighting to put food on the table for their families. Like, that's a whole different ballgame than just coming into – even like a high major college basketball program. It's a different ball game. But at the same time, while it shouldn't be too much of a hindrance when you fail, when you do well and you're consistently producing at that level, given how young you are, you do need to take note of that. You do need to put a mark by there. Okay, maybe I need to go back and dig in a little more and reevaluate the film. And that's sort of what I did with Dyson Daniels. It's something that I made sure I went back and did for Marjan Beauchamp. And even even Michael Foster, I don't know if you have, I'd be throwing you a curveball. I don't know if you have any Michael Foster thoughts for me. But like when, when I, I, I talked about it on the podcast that I just did with Rucker, but when you hear that someone hasn't been playing basketball for nearly as long as some of the other peers that he's playing with and against, and you see what he's doing in that league and the consistent production that he's putting up despite not nearly knowing what the hell he's doing on both ends of the floor, that's meaningful to me. So I agree with you wholeheartedly that Daniels, while he might not have the sexiest game as a prospect right now, the production and what he is doing, those things are absolutely noteworthy in a draft class where there's so many other question marks behind the production of other prospects. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And like, Age can trip you up because you could you could mistake a player who is young and has some flashes but is really a negative player and say, oh, well, they're young, so I'm going to favor them over this guy two years older who is a positive player. And that's a very dangerous road to go down because it's not as though – I mean, NBA teams are patient, but they're patient with guys who can at least contribute, can do something on the yep. floor. They're not patient with guys who are not good enough to be on the floor. So with Foster, for example, I I need to go back to to figure out, because I've looked more at Dyson and at Hardy, uh, more so than than Beauchamp and Foster. Although, you know, I I noticed them. I'm just not scouting for them yet specifically. Sure. Um, But I I might end up liking one or both of those guys more than Dyson. You know, what I have noticed about Foster is that he is young and angry and strong (laughs) and can, like, can out-rebound grown men. And like you said, like, I see him make defensive mistakes here and there, 
But I would never look at um, the court and say he's the worst or the second worst or the third worst guy on the court. He's Usually, still blocking two shots per game. Yeah. Like, even when we don't think you know what he's doing. Yeah. He's one of the five best, you know. And so whether um, whether you want to say that, uh, you know, Dyson Daniels has better feel than Michael Foster – it doesn't like that you can get into micro skill stuff like that. And do you prefer high field players? Do you per- prefer players with great strength for their age and position? Like reasonable minds can differ, but as long as both are productive, as soon as both are productive and they're both young, then you should mm-hmm. be bullish on both. And so, yeah, I, I think that Foster should go in the first round. I think Beauchamp probably should. I think all four of them should this year. If it were last year, I would probably have a different opinion, but the one thing I, I am feeling like kind of con or I would say reasonably confident in is that I'm going to end up preferring Daniels to Hardy. Is that where you are or do you prefer Hardy to Daniels? I'm not completely out on Hardy and I'm fine to talk about him for a little bit because I would love some more thoughts from you on him. Actually, the thing with Hardy and I, I think enough people have caught on to this now at this point, especially after the Vegas game, that dude cannot dribble the basketball. For, for the yeah. life of him. It's, it's high. Yeah. It, it, it gets him in so much trouble. I Some people, when he was first struggling to do anything but just shoot a jumper from way outside the three-point line at the start of the Ignite season, a lot of people were saying, well, maybe he's not that quick off the bounce. Maybe he's just not as athletic of a guard as we thought initially coming in in terms of his speed, his burst, his quickness. I don't think that's the problem. And I also don't think it's a problem when he does get the ball inside the arc and he has to finish a floater or he has to finish a shot around the basket because he can finish over guys. He can finish through guys. Mm-hmm. He can make some tough pull-up shots. It is the shooting, even though it's not as efficient as we'd like to see the numbers be, there are a lot of shots that just flat out rim in and out. And it was a common criticism for somebody like Cole Anthony, who I remained high on through that whole process. The dude... I literally just watched him like an hour ago, just knock down a freaking logo Lillard three-point uh, on my 76ers. So, so sometimes it is a question of make or miss, and if more of the shots were going in, then maybe we'd be having a different conversation about this player. However, when you can't create off the dribble at the guard spot when the whole point of your game is essentially be on the ball more often than not, that's a problem. And if I see that consistently be a problem, while I may still believe in your long-term upside and believe that you can still hit a level above where I'm projecting you right now, I can't have you higher than some of these other players who are popping off in different situations in different programs and they're showing skill sets where I know that this, this, and this is a lot like you to translate than that that could potentially be the linchpin that holds a lot of your appeal together. So that's that's where I'm at on him. So it's it's a lot closer than it once was, Chuck. I'll say that. It's a lot closer than it once was. Yeah, I, I think we probably agree. I also like hard it's interesting because on those G League games, because there are very few fans in the stands and it's much closer to like a pickup open gym environment, you know, you hear the players talk a lot more. And Hardy seems to be like a pretty good communicator. He seems like he's a good teammate um, and he can yep. he can process what's going on. I, I agree with you. I think it's a skill thing. I also think that his decision on um, when to pass during a drive and what passes to make and executing those passes is not great. 
Um, and he's gotten funny. better in pick and roll. He has gotten better at that, and I'm glad they put him in more of those situations with Ignite. When he gets that initial screen, he's become better at reads. But I agree with you. When he's, when he's on an island by himself or he has to make one of those rapid decisions, he generally panics and tries to force up a shot that, that he shouldn't, and he doesn't see the floor the same as when he first gets that initial screen at the top. I agree with you. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's when people t- – when analysts and it's usually I when it's usually like if you're watching like a broadcast of an NBA game and someone's talking about a young player who isn't necessarily like a draft guy but they're you know they're talking about a rookie you know, someone will say well you know it takes bigs a couple years to adjust to the NBA game it takes bigs a long time and I've heard you know it takes guards a long time to really adjust that you know the turnover rate and adjust to the reads of an nba game and the other day i was like you know it takes wings a long time (laughs) i was just like laughing (laughs) because you know it's just it's whatever you think the point is a player like hardy regardless of his position is going to take a long time because he has skill stuff that he really needs to work on in order to make his theory possible he doesn't have ideal size because he's only probably about six four um and his his decision-making is a work in progress too. So when you have that many things, he probably has more physical talent than Dyson and he's a better, uh, certainly a better shooter off the catch than Dyson is. And traditionally, that means that they're a high pick. If you're athletic, you can finish and you can shoot. That's usually like a money combination. But I, I think even to find what player it's going to be, you got to suffer through a lot of developmental reps with Jaden. Yep. And since I, I I'll, I'll have to watch more before really coming to this conclusion, but I doubt that he has like really all starish upside. So if you've got to wait a long time for someone to even really be a, a positive rotation piece, then a, a lot of other options become more attractive. And, and that's why I think I'll end up preferring Dyson. I think he'll find that rotation identity quicker than Hardy will. I mean, it's it, Chad. Chad Ford said it best when he came out and and he published that he's hearing from NBA teams that they some people have him as low as twenty on their board. Like that, that's all you need to hear. Like clearly, there's there are issues. We've seen them on film, and now that that's becoming the consensus that he's going to drop that low, it's going to be very hard for him to recover his stock and get back up and prop himself back up to where he once was when. It's as you and I said, there are foundational issues there in terms of the role that he could play in the NBA that would give him so much appeal to, to being drafted high and, and having that star upside. So we're 100 percent in agreement. Um, I, I'm giving him like the very last benefit of the doubt, Chuck, until after I see him live. I'm going to be seeing him at the end of this month. So there'll be another month into exhibition type of games. We'll see what he does when he plays Delaware when, when I'm there in person, and we'll see if I notice anything different in live versus what I've watched on the tape. But, yeah, we're, it, it's close, Chuck. I think a lot of people have, have sadly given up the fight. Although, although, listen, Coach Adam Spinella, who is definitely smarter than me, might be smarter <laughs> than you, will not give up. He will not give up on Jane Hardy. So, I don't know. Does that tell us something? I don't know. Maybe it does. Maybe of course it does. It does. Yeah, Co- Coach Spinell is the best. He's the man. So, yeah. Like, it's not that he lacks talent. It, it really he is. He does not lack talent. 
It's it's I'm I'm just more concerned about how a team goes about developing him. And Coach Spinella, I guarantee, knows more about that than either one of us do. But like, <laughs> it, it's just interesting. Like, if you look at last year's draft, and it it is unfair because 2021 was so loaded. But like, two guards who went in the latter half of the first round, and I'm not even naming every guard who went in the latter half of the first round, like who have gotten some playing time and have showed flashes as rookies were Trey Mann and Josh Christopher. And I wouldn't, I would not take Jaden Hardy over either one of those guys as prospects. And like Josh Christopher went 23rd. That, that It just tells you how much talent is at the guard position, whether yep. you're a point guard or a combo guard or whatever in the NBA. Cam Thomas went 28th or whatever it was. I'd rather have him. So it, it's just, it's an uphill climb really is all right we we, we are going to go off the rails a little bit because damn it chuck now you brought it up now i can't get the thoughts out of my head now we got to talk about this at least a little bit because you mentioned how much talent is at the guard spot in the nba the yeah. threshold that you have to clear to play starting point guard in the nba is a lot higher than what people would generally care to admit and we have this clump of point guards in this draft who they're all they're all advertised preseason as being lottery level guards, and I'm like, all right, I see some some good stuff from Kennedy Chandler initially. I watched some of the tape overseas from John Montero. He looks fun. Ty Ty Washington, I, I understand the appeal. Whether he's closer to to quickly or maybe he's a few levels above that. Like let's let's let the season play out. JD mm-hmm. Davison, I loved watching JD Davison preseason. I just loved his attitude, his motor, his intensity. Like that's the type of guard that I generally want to sign up for. Let's see if he can actually play point guard. I have Ty Ty Washington at 12. And then I have those other three clustered, like the 20 to 22 range. Because I just don't know what the hell to do with them. To be to be perfectly honest with you, I think they're, they would all be better off in the NBA as coming off the bench. And if that's the case, I'd set a little bit of a hot take on the podcast that I just did with Tyler. But it would not shock me if I dropped one or more of them out of – my top 30 altogether because I'm just not seeing it with them. I don't know if you have any thoughts about the point guard class as a whole and where you're at with evaluating some of these guys, but I, I, I have soured on essentially three out of the four. And I know that there's guys like trying to break into that first round for me, who I know for a fact that you have as first round grades, like Jordan Hall, for example, though, those guys knocking at the door and I want to let them in. It's just a matter of trying to decide, if I'm a decision maker, then and I'm trying to put a board together, then who am I leaving off the board? Do I actually buy all of these guards as starting level upside talents in the NBA? Where are you at on some of those guys? Uh, similarly, in fact, I have one of them outside my top thirty, um, and that's that's JD, and he could come back, like he could end up in the top thirty. Yeah, especially oh, because... all of all of this is so fluid, dude. Like we're not going to know until like months down the road. Yeah, and like Alabama tends to do well by their guards. And especially, I mean, they tend to do well by anyone who they give playmaking reps to. I just haven't been like very impressed with um, his reads. I watched him in uh, the game against Houston. It's And granted, Houston's a very good uh, point of attack defensive team. But it seems like when he had the ball, they, he went where the defense wanted him to go. They were icing him. That's where they'd force him. And then they could you know, play his, whatever his skips or whatever passes, you know, he could make out of that like mini little trap. Um, and so I, 
It could change, but the one that I like the best is Kennedy Chandler. Um, I have him in the teens. I, you know, I I had Ty Ty ahead of him, but I just think that Chandler, um, I just think he's a better athlete, even though he's a little bit shorter. And he's the best player on that Tennessee team. And he gets to the rim, you know, in spite of his size, he gets to the rim, he finishes. He uh, is a disruptive defender despite his size. And I think if... If Chandler were 6'3 or 6'4, everyone would basically agree that he was a future starting NBA point guard. So if, if, if the height is the only thing, but you have all of the other sort of statistical markers, which I think that he has, then I'm, I'm willing to keep you as like a pretty solid first round grade. Ty Ty, I, I worry about his ability to guard at the NBA level, um, though I love his attitude and I love his shot making. Um, and Montero, I, I, I said it on my last podcast. I'm just in the woods. I don't know how to judge. <laughs> like I, I'm not above saying like, I'm thoroughly confused. No, I, I, I literally admitted that on my last podcast. So I, yeah. I, 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 I was as revealing as I possibly could be as a scout. So I, I'm glad to hear the same. Yeah. So yeah, it'll, time will tell to be continued on John Montero or Young so Montero. the thing about, the thing about Kennedy Chandler that I can't get out of my head is I watched that Texas Tech game in full, and I watched that Arizona <laughs> game in full, and when he's played the two teams that have as comparable to NBA size all over the court as possible, he could not do anything. And it's not just because he's short, and I'm talking about from a scoring perspective, not like a playmaking distribution, balance the offense type perspective. I'm talking about from a scoring and a shooting perspective. It's not just that he's short. It's that he's six foot, but he's also groundbound when he shoots. He does not get up off the ground. His shot is completely changeable and blockable. And if you just put size on him at this point in his career, you can neutralize and eliminate that part of his game to where he kind of just has to be a, a purely setup guy. And usually those types of point guards are much better suited coming off the bench where they can pick and choose their spots a little easier. And because they are such more, they're more natural distributors of the basketball, they can kind of calm everybody down, set the table and make sure a second unit just doesn't go completely off the edge. And while I think the upside for him would be like a Jalen Brunson type of player and Jalen Brunson is a spot starter and he certainly puts up points in bunches when he's called upon to do so. And Luka Doncic or insert guard A or B can't go. And he has to be the starter for the Mavs at that spot. He can do that, but I don't know if anybody wants Jalen Brunson, like throwing him into the starting lineup saying that he's going to be our starting point guard for like 82 games out of the season. So that's kind of where I'm at on, on Chandler. I don't know if that's fair or foul. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I, I agree that I think he's going to be a backup point guard early in his career. It's it's more that um, I think he has enough craft, and I think that his shot. I agree. Like I agree about that. Those two games that you mentioned, but the fact that you mentioned it with Halliburton too. I mean, the, his shot does go in. He is a good shooter when he shoots. Yep. Yep. Um, so I just think you know, if you're good enough to be a backup point guard at age 20 then i'm hoping that by age 24 you know he really he makes his pick and roll craft really top shelf and 
he'll be able to use his hesitation and, you know, his handle to get himself better looks and that in time he could be a starter. But again, I have him, you know, 15th, 16th. And so I'm not saying he's going to be a starter because I don't know that there are for sure 15 starters in this class. It's more that just, I think he's going to hang around. I think he has a chance to start based on production as a freshman. Now, usually with some of these draft classes, we come in thinking that like 30 players could potentially be starters down the road if everything breaks right for them. And, and that number usually dwindles down to anywhere between 12 to 15. That's historically yeah. what draft classes have panned out to be. This class, we're struggling to get to like 15 or 20. Who the hell knows what the number is <laughs> actually going to be when it's all said and done. But that that's a great point to, to make as well. If you can have any sort of sure commodity at, at any level, even if that's He's a backup point guard, but you know he's going to be a backup point guard in the league for a long time. I I kind of have that that bias to to bet on that type of a player with like a late first round pick and bring that type of third or fourth guard into my organization to have them on a reasonable rookie contract than trying to go out in free agency and find player X or player Y or I don't know DJ Augustin still playing at like thirty eight years old or whatever and like trying to take my chances with yeah. that. Like I I'd rather make the up the like a potential little bit of an upside bet. With, with the traffic, but that's just my line of thinking. But all right, we, we, we talked about guards. I, I had to throw that in there though, because I was just curious after some of the things that you said, but the last guy that we wanted to point out and talk about has, I think he's taken draft Twitter by storm, especially over the last week. Um, Walker Kessler out of Auburn. Now I watched this guy in North Carolina last year. I did not see any of this coming. I did not see that he would be potentially knocking on the door as a first round type of guy this quickly. I thought if anything, he'd be like a three or four year college guy, but Jesus Christ, Chuck, like this dude, this dude defensively, are, are we sure that he is like, I, I, I think a lot of people, if you just ask like the, the, the general person or, or like a novice draft analyst, like if you ask them who's the best shot blocker in college basketball right now, like a lot of people would say Chad Holmgren. Are we sure Walker Kessler isn't actually the answer? Because uh, – Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Chad. If you, have, if you just want to respond to that right away, go no, ahead. No, 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 no. No, because I, I actually thought about this question. <laughs> Even though you didn't ask me, like we didn't agree to it before the podcast, I thought about it, but keep going, keep going. I, I want to stew on it some more. I mean, this guy – technically speaking as a shot blocker so when, when when you're a guard or you're a wing and you're driving to the basket and you're going up against a big who you know is a really good shot blocker you're always coached to go into the body the best you can try to draw a foul and come away with what you can try to finish through the body then try and go up and at them and attack them because they're probably going to block the shot on you walker kessler doesn't give a shit what you do this guy puts you in jail every time you try and drive on him. His his timing, his anticipation, his awareness, his body control while everything is happening to hold himself back from committing a foul. He only commits two fouls per game. Like usually if you see a guy blocking this many shots per game, he averages 4.2 blocks. They're also usually foul machines because they're usually just not that technically savvy on the defensive end. They're usually just trying to – go for a block on every single play and not fully know how to approach that on every single player against every single type of player. Kessler doesn't give a crap. Kessler just, he makes the block regardless. And 
some of the stuff he does in that regard just leaves me in awe. Now, we could have a conversation about how effective he is defending away from the basket. I don't know if anybody drafting him is necessarily drafting him to be excited from anything he would do away from the basket. It's about when some guy is driving in and he has to be the one to protect the paint, he's going to win that battle, not just more often than not, but far more often than not. And he's not a sexy offensive type of talent, but he is intelligent to his credit. He's another really good cutter. He's somebody who knows how to dive to the basket, pick and choose the spots. He can do a few things out of the short roll. He's not a jump shooter, but he can make intelligent decisions with the ball in his hands. And he is a good finisher around the basket. You know he's going to be a double-double threat machine because of his rebounding, although sometimes it's it, it's weird. Like He'll have these games where you think he has more rebounds than he actually does, but he only has like six or seven. But I don't have any questions about his box-out technique, his approach, his awareness to on how and when to carve out. So I don't have any questions about his rebound. I think he is going to be a good NBA rebounder. When you're talking about a double-double threat, regardless of how it happens, a double-double threat – who can block shots with such technique and grace yet ferocity at the same time that he does. If we're going to talk about bigs at the end of the first round, and you and I sort of went back and forth about this already on social media, like the usual names that come up, like the Mark Williams and the Christian Colocos and the Ishmael Kamagates and the, and the Yannick Sosas, like Walker Kessler, I think is actually the answer. And I was nowhere close to coming to that conclusion before this season started but you watch enough game film and you kind of have to, to come to that conclusion, not just by some of the numbers, but the eye test. So the floor is yours, my friend. You can start wherever you want. You can answer that question whenever you want, but give me all of your, your Walker Kessler propaganda. Man, I'm crossed up here because I was expecting you to like present the case against. How high are you on Walker right now? Where you got? Uh, I mean – I have him like just outside. I don't have him as a first round or I have him just outside the first round. But if it gets to the point where some of these other guys fall out of the first round, like I'm expecting to, like I kind of alluded to with some other players that I'm interested in. If I'm going to draft one of these big men, more traditional big men, non-Durin big men in the first round, right. it is going to be this guy. Okay. There's very little question in my mind. So uh, I'm still looking into to Ishmael Kamagate because I do like him. Um, mm -hmm. I have Kessler and Kamagate in that tier that sort of starts at 12 for me. And I think right now it goes to 25 or 26. And I have them both towards the bottom of that tier. But I, you know, I, I, I host the Chucking Darts podcast. I really shouldn't be shy. <laughs> I think that uh, Chuck that Kessler, damn dart on my podcast, Chuck. Come on, dude. I think Chuck he's, I think he's going to be a starting NBA center. I think sooner or later that will happen. Now, that doesn't mean you take him tenth. You know, no. under the auspice of we we need to. You know, there's 15 starters. They should all go in the top 15 picks because bigs uh, have a tougher road to getting on the floor because there's only room for one five at a time on the floor. And um, usually getting to a, a solid NBA level defensively as a rim protector, which is what gets you on the floor, takes time. I mean, just ask Jackson Hayes how that is going. <laughs> so 
That might mean that by the time that Kessler is a starting center, he's on his second team, and it doesn't really do his first team any good to draft him high only to see him become a starter elsewhere once he sort of reaches his prime. But nonetheless, what Kessler has first and foremost, um, excluding Chet, excluding Chet, against all the other prospects in this class is size. And at a very, very basic level, NBA centers. What is he? Seven one? Is he seven one? Is that what he is? And he is seven one and two forty five. Yep. And he's twenty years old. I think he turns twenty one this summer. By contrast, Christian Coloco, who I think most people probably still have ahead of Walker Kessler, I would think, um, is twenty is either twenty two or is going to be twenty two by draft time. Um, and is seven is listed at seven one and is two twenty five. So he's older, but has sort of a naturally kind of lighter frame. And he's added some weight, which is helping him. Yeah. But you can even and I like Coloco. Um, I think that he should be drafted and, and given a guarantee. But he, uh, you can see even in games where he's playing well, he kind of gets knocked off of uh, balance a little bit. Uh, too easily. It, the way I've seen it most often when he's on offense and he's on the short roll, he doesn't always stay like completely balanced. And if he gets nudged, he really it can throw off whatever he's trying to do. Kessler is at, at almost seven one and two fifty with like plenty of wingspan. He probably has a seven five wingspan, seven five seven six in that area. Um, he just like. He's just bigger than everyone else on the court wherever he plays, and he's going to be bigger than everyone on the court in the NBA except for some opposing centers. So he already stands out even at his position for that purpose. Um, number two, you mentioned that you know it's not really his calling card to be guarding in space, which I agree with, but Auburn uses him to occasionally blitz pick and rolls, and he shows pretty high on screens and they entrust him to recover um again i know i mentioned him before but my buddy draft pal had another article come out this week on the stepian about different kinds of rim protectors and how you know we usually oh that that thing that thing was a masterpiece you can absolutely plug that thing on my podcast shout out to him that was a masterpiece yeah so he the basic thesis is that rim protecting is usually used as this catch-all term to being to just say that do you help prevent layups and do you deter shots at the rim but really different players go about it in different ways yeah and he very smartly broke it down in terms of Guys who primarily defend only shots at the rim and guys who defend lots of shots at the rim, but also lots of shots further and further away. And the latter group tends to, you know, the more you can defend away from the rim and still protect the rim, the more athletic you tend to be. And so Giannis or Evan Mobley would be in that class because they can defend all over the floor and their teams use them in that way. Um, And you can sort of backtrack to sort of your traditional paint bound uh, drop bigs who you know protect right at the rim. Kessler, and this is where I I actually disagreed a little bit with where uh, Powell had him in his piece. Auburn uses Kessler to defend some shots away from the rim, and he his block numbers are completely insane. He gets some blocks on jump shots where 
he, yep. you know, just contests and his pure length can just get to these jumpers um, and make the people shooting them, even if he doesn't get the block, uncomfortable and, you know, forces a lot of misses. Though, um, I think there's a question as to whether or not he'll be athletic enough to defend a lot away from the rim in the NBA. I do think it is a positive indicator that if a team does draft him as a traditional drop big, and he does play basically just around the rim, he's going to be just fine. For a 7-1 player, I think he moves pretty well. Like, I really do, on both sides. I saw him in... Um, he's not quick, but he's coordinated. I actually right? he's not. He's, he, 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 well, all right, he's not as quick as some of the other, you know, truly, truly athletic bigs in the NBA. But he's very coordinated, sure, and he, yeah. he never looks clumsy on the court. So that matters. That, that, that's what I'm saying. And I think there's a temptation to look at him um, just because of how how tall he is. Um, and he's not, like I said, he's not like rail thin, but he's kind of gangly. He's lots of limbs. And to just sort of assume that he's clumsy. He also doesn't have, you know, his touch numbers and his free throw numbers are not good. So I think there's, a again, a temptation to be like, well, he can't shoot. That means he's, you know, throwing up bricks. He's not coordinated. And that really is not the case. You know, there is a game, I think it was their most recent game against South Carolina, where he, um, and he's a pretty willing three-point shooter, but he set a pick. He went to pop at the top of the key, but he faked the pop, planted, and cut back door for like an easy pocket pass and dunk. And he, it, it just looked very, very smooth. Like he does some stuff like that, whether it's cuts on offense or um, on defense, recovering back to the hoop after he's tried to blow a play up. And I think it looks nimble. I think it looks just fine. And the stat that I cited about Kessler preseason, because the Don Mike Gribbenoff flagged him as one of the guys he thought was interesting coming into the year was that as a freshman, even at North Carolina, where they had four, no less than four like pure centers that they played. So he was really just getting like cups of coffee here and there. Even in that system, he put up a block rate of over 10 and a steal rate of over three. And the steal rate is really the one that pops because, again, usually rim-protecting fives camp out at the rim and they're not really getting steals. But Kessler is aggressive with his length, and he trusts his ability to recover and to time these contests. So he he tries to poke the ball away. He had a block percentage of 10, steal percentage of 3. High major freshmen uh, to do that in the last 15 years are him, Nerlens Noel, and Willie Cauley-Stein. Those are the only three players that have done that since, like, 2008. So... Both those guys are obviously NBA players. Both have yep. been starters in their NBA career. Um, and I believe Pauly Stein only did it as a sophomore and Kessler did it as a freshman. Fast forward to this year, and Kessler has the, the best block numbers in the country. I think that Chet is a better shot blocker because you know, Gonzaga has Drew Timmy, and so Chet isn't always in position to be the guy, you know, that they are funneling everything toward to contest. I think that Chet also is a better uh, deterrent at the rim, and so guards don't take as many shots to be blocked around yeah. him as they do for Kessler. But apart from Chet, 
Um, I think, I mean, Kessler is the best shot blocker in the country. That's my opinion. And he, um, it's just, he, he just, he's never really out of any play around the rim. Whether, even if he's on the other side of the rim when someone takes off, I posted a clip of his today where it was an out of bounds play, I believe, maybe a sideline out of bounds where, you know, the other team sort of stacks four players and everyone's going to, you know, break in different directions and they're going to set screens and everyone's going to try to cut. And uh, the opposing player in South Carolina got the ball to the completely wide open lane and Kessler was like leaning towards the foul line. And this guy got the ball on the wing with a completely clear path towards the hoop. And he had his gather and he was taking his like last step before his layup. That's when Kessler reacted and he got to the, he got to the layup so quickly that it never had a prayer. He blocked this <laughs> shot before it, before it was as high as like the bottom of the backboard. It just, it never had a chance. And, you know, the one game where I think that Kessler wasn't like a first-round prospect at this point, so people weren't really using it as a test. But I think the one game where people would probably kind of snicker and and dismiss him was when they played UConn, which was one of the best games of the year so far, as a double overtime game, where he went up against uh, Adama Sinogo. and. Yeah. That is a like a wide shouldered, like 260 pound tank post scorer. And he was able to body Kessler and get shots up over him. And he probably scored five or six times on him in the post and really looks comfortable on an island against him, which is fair. Um, but Kessler still put up 14 and 10 in that game and was still after the first half, largely a positive player for Auburn. The, his issue is that at 7-1, he still doesn't have a very strong core. Like, he's 245 because he has sort of broad shoulders and there's seven feet one of him. Mm -hmm. But he hasn't quite, you know, he doesn't really have an NBA body just yet. When he gets that, when he's 24 And he's going to get that. There's no question yeah. he's going to get that. When he's 7'1", 260, or he's 7'1", 265, th those sorts of players, and it's not like the NBA runs a lot of offense through the post anyway, you know, big to big, um, they're not going to bother him anymore. And he's still going to have all this coordination and all this timing and all this length and all this production. So, I, you know, again, if you're looking at players who stick out relative to other draft classes and things like that, Walker, Walker Kessler isn't Chet Holmgren, and he certainly isn't Evan Mobley. But you have to go back pretty far to find a player at 7-1 who was so productive as a defensive guy. And I think it he as much as anything, maybe not as much as, but he's a primary reason why I think Auburn is, you know, again, if I'm, I'm going to make predictions, I think they are more or less a shoe-in to like make it to the Elite Eight at least. And light, very likely make it to the final four because that his defensive impact is just so pronounced every single game. I have not watched a game where he did not make like a real difference on that end. So, so that that's the great word to use with him is impact. And I highlight that because the main competitor, at least in my mind, to who would have been the best big to potentially be drafted at the back end of the first round or however high you want to prop some of these guys up, 
in my mind, the main contender was Mark Williams. And Mark Williams has not been as impactful for Duke consistently as Walker Kessler has been. You just look at some of the games like I I know that Mark Williams only averages 1.9 fouls per game by the numbers, but that has also come down because he's sneakily not playing nearly as many minutes compared to what he was at the beginning of the year. He had more of a consistent role in the Gonzaga game, he had a consistent role that ACC tournament run where he broke out. He was playing a decent amount of minutes. Duke has found this lineup now with like Paolo Bencaro at the five and AJ right. Griffin at the four. And I think coach K has kind of fallen in love with the lineup because of how many options it gives the team offensively. Auburn's not taking Walker Kessler off the floor. No. Walker Kessler is that good defensively. And he's, he's not, I don't think he's setting the world on fire offensively, but he's so smart as you pointed out all the different things, his awareness is touched specifically around the basket. Like Auburn's not taking that guy off the floor. So no. that in my mind, like any of these other bigs that I think we can throw in the conversation either have not had as meaningful or impactful roles where they are as Kessler, or they just aren't where he is in multiple different aspects as a prospect. So that's why I think when we frame the conversation around the word impact, as you did, Chuck, it's, to me, the, like I said, it's like when we're comparing him to some of the other players, like it's not even close. Yeah, and I'm glad that you mentioned his offense because, like I said before, his free throw numbers aren't good, although his shot form, which is, like, not traditional. I don't like, hate it. I, I don't, don't hate, hate it either. I think, And, again, it's because he's a pretty fluid guy. And it, he, his shot, it, again, it, it's non-traditional, but I think it, it looks repeatable. And it's not like his elbow is doing anything crazy. And he takes some threes, and I've seen him hit a couple of them, so he's willing. I don't think an NBA team will really lean into that unless he improves out of the lot. But he is a real, like, real vertical threat. He is off the ground quickly. He has soft hands. And when these Auburn guards, and they have a couple good ones, hit him with lobs, he is going to finish. They played a game against uh, St. Louis, which is a very tough uh, defensive team. But their center is like 6'9". He's undersized. Um, and this was a few games ago where they were still... I mean, they still do. But they were leaning into giving Jabari Smith a lot of on-ball reps on the perimeter. And I don't know if we'll have time to get into sort of top five guys. I know you mentioned that, that we might do that. As a possible segue into that, Jabari um, is not that dangerous attacking going to the hoop, at least not right now. It, you know, his ball handling is probably his main question. And so St. Louis was winning for most of this game because Jabari had a lot of possessions where he was attacking from above the break. And once he got inside the arc, it didn't lead to like many good things. He, you know, he's going to win his fair share of battles just because he's so good as a pull-up jump shooter. But it wasn't the most efficient offense. The last seven minutes of that game, and I think Auburn was down like five points or so. Mm -hmm. They had Jabari after whatever initial action, they had him go to the corner, and they just ran a high pick and roll with one of their guards and with Kessler rolling down towards the hoop. And because St. Louis didn't have a big who could hang with him, it was just dunk, dunk, 
after dunk. And if they ever um, tagged hard and tried to take that that lob away, well, then he's the, Jabari Smith was getting a pass in the corner, which is as dangerous as you can get. And that's why I think that this team has such a high ceiling is because it can go to offense like that. That is very simple. It's not like scouting forward is going to make it any easier to defend and that they're going to be able to execute. So I... And he is also, when he's gotten, you know, ISO post touches, he's shown pretty sound footwork too. You know, he, he has weird, I won't say weird. He, he doesn't have great just natural touch. If he has like an off-balance floater or whatever, it's not going to mm-hmm. go in. Um, but he has pretty sound fundamentals. I just, I, I don't know, man. I I think I would just be very surprised if down the road this guy who can who can impact on both sides like this, who's already this good in college, this is his first real extended run as a starter. Um, I'd be very surprised if he doesn't start in the NBA. If this guy learns how to shoot the ball, good God, then yeah. a lot of people should should be afraid. Like when when I say when I say the name Brooke Lopez. I'm not talking about Brooke Lopez that was in Brooklyn, that was the post-up machine that had incredible touch from virtually everywhere he wanted to do something from. He was pouring in like 18 to 20 points per game. He was a surefire also. I'm talking about the Brooke Lopez that's in Milwaukee right now. And I look at that player, I see that player, and I think that I'm not going to rule out that type of outcome for Walker Kessler as an NBA player. And I can't see that outcome for any of these other big men that we can throw into this conversation that we're having at like the back end of the first round. And I know obviously there are, there are some things that need to come around for Walker still offensively, but you and I are both acknowledging we think he can get there on those things. And if he does, then even where we could project him to be drafted right now, I know hindsight's 2020, but that player would not be just like a back end of the first type of player that's like definitively a top 20 type of talent in the draft. So it's, it's just a really fascinating conversation to have around Kessler. I'm so glad that he's popped out on the radar. I'm glad that he's become more of a sure thing. I'm glad that this Auburn team in general is fun as hell to watch. I will, I will touch on the top five briefly, briefly, because you mentioned Jabari Smith, Chuck. I know that I, I saw one of the tweets you put out, on social media where you had said to somebody, you had Jabari, you had made the decision to put Jabari Smith like number one on your board mm-hmm. for a while, like like from, from after like the first few times that you initially saw him. Um, what type of prospect in your mind is Jabari Smith and why do more people need to have him number one over Paolo Vincaro or Chet Holmgren, which by the way, I, I do now have him number one. I didn't want to get there initially. I didn't want to overreact. But the more that I thought about it, the more I wanted to put him there and have him as number one on my board. But why did you want to put him there? Oh, man. Okay, so I'll say that for my... We won't get to the other guys. We'll just talk about Jabari. But just okay. the floor okay. is yours on Jabari. I mean, I'll, I, I sort of have to touch on him and just to say why Jabari's one and not sure. his other two. Um, cause I am like everyone else. I, I think the top, I, I flirted with putting Jay Ivey up there, but the top three are him and Paolo and Chet in some order. Um, I do a much sort of different calculation 
in determining the top of the draft than I do what we've been talking about, which is sort of like 10 and on. That's all about is this, do you see a way for this person to earn minutes to carve out a role in the NBA? At the top of the draft, they're all getting, getting minutes. So it's a question of what is their ultimate role? How how important is that role? How well do they project to perform in that role relative to other players? Um, all three of them have a case. The, the reason I am leaning Jabari <clears throat> is that his role um, for like winning playoff series, which is at the, at the top of the draft, that's really where you have to start. How is this person going to help me win playoff series? Um, you know, deeper and deeper into the playoffs. It is a smoother uh, vision for me than the other two. And that might mean that I just sort of lack the vision to understand the different sorts of ways that Paolo Bencaro and Chet Holmgren could win you a conference finals. With Jabari, <clears throat> I think that it is very clear that he needs to play off of a, a great offensive player. So he is not going to be sort of the primary option for yep. the team. I also think that Chet Holmgren is not going to be the primary offensive option for any nope. team. Um, and Paolo, if you want to put Paolo one because you believe he could be that person, I understand. I think that it is, it's fuzzy for him. I think that by the end of the year, I might be there and say, you know, yes, I feel that way. But where I am now is that if he is the number one offensive option on your team, then you're probably at a disadvantage, you know, in a second round playoff series or, or later, but it's subject to change. So if we're dealing with an assumption that none of them are going to be the primary offensive option, then you say, okay, well, what, how do they fit on these teams? And with Jabari, it's, it's understandable because he is, you know, he's not in the same stratosphere as Kevin Durant. But there is not anyone since Kevin Durant who has been a better shooter at six foot ten coming out of the draft. Not that I can remember. I don't know if if you have a name, but he he's the best guy at that height. So that means probably that um, he is going to be very useful in just about any playoff setting because he'll be able to shoot over anyone. I think there's a good chance he's going to eventually be able to shoot off movement. And he, like Dyson, is young. He's, in fact, younger than Dyson Daniels. I think he turns 19 in May. So while his ball handling needs a lot of work, while he isn't the most nuclear athlete, you're saying that there is a real baseline of value that he's going to provide early and he's going to get all these NBA reps and all these minutes no matter where he goes. No matter where he goes. And so yep. that means that his development could take lots of interesting little twists and turns. Maybe the ball handling comes around and now he can get to the rim and finish and draw fouls. And so he's just going to average 25 a game for 10 years. And then he's a, a very sound number two offensive option. And I'll get to his defense in a moment. Um, maybe it's that, maybe it's that, um, he starts hitting off the dribble threes, you know, pull up threes from 28 feet as a six foot 10 player, which just, it just warps defensive spacing to such a degree that passing lanes are just wide open for whatever 
other offensive player he plays with. It's that possibility to me is the offensive reason of putting him number one. It's heavily tied to how young he is. I think Paolo's like six months younger. And while that isn't really a significant difference, Chet is a full year younger. And that is a significant difference to mm-hmm. me. Um, defensively, he, um, I'm not going to say he's a better defensive player than Chet because I don't think that's true, but he is a pretty clearly to me better defensive player than Paolo. Um, and that's really the issue. Paolo is his best position is as five. And I, you made a great point about how Duke has leaned into that lineup with him at five because that is the best lineup they have. With Paolo at five, they have such an offensive advantage over whoever they play that even if a team can can attack Paolo in pick and roll and catch him heavy-footed in making rotations and in sort of playing the cat-and-mouse two-on-one game and drop, um, it's not going to matter because Duke offensively is just too... They're just too good. At the NBA level, he is going to really get punished as a small ball five. And so Paolo's task is going to then be as a essentially big wing defender as a four in a playoff series. The problem with that is that frequently your power forward is your most important wing defender in a deep playoff series, because those are the series where you're now playing Giannis. You're playing uh, Jason Tatum. You're playing LeBron. You're playing Luka. You know, you're playing guys who are six, eight or taller, who have all of this skill and who are probably going to abuse almost every small forward in the league who isn't like Mikhail Bridges. So now Paolo not only can't play five, at least not for long stretches, but now he has the toughest defensive task for his team. That is my, that's my concern. I admit it's a little like galaxy brained and I might be getting ahead of myself on that. Jabari is built for that defensive assignment because he is a much better lateral athlete. His footwork on defense is impeccable. Um, He has good steal and block numbers, you know, already as a freshman. And if you're looking for someone to throw to big wing, a 6'10 guy who moves as well as Jabari does, who is very competitive, who is strong and going to get stronger that I would much rather have him than Paolo. So, while Jabari isn't going to like, I think necessarily carry you over the finish line. If all of them are going to need another star to play with, he is the one that that makes the most sense for that really important role. Chet, I think, could get there. I just think that Chet's team context is more uh, specific than Jabari's is. Jabari fits on every team in the league. Yeah, every single one. Very smoothly. It is hard to screw up that development. Uh, With Chet, in my opinion, he can't be a full-time five in the NBA because there will be some physical matchups that will trouble him. I agree Um, with that. Like, if he, again, if he's in the second round and he's playing one of these seven-footers, if he's playing against Mobley or Giannis or Embiid or Jokic or whomever... It might sound unfair to to put him in that spot, but you're taking someone number one. You're going to have someone in that spot. Um, I just think he's going to be at a disadvantage. So I think he needs to play 
on a team where he can toggle between the four and the five and play with someone who is strong enough to like hold up in those scenarios. For example, he's not going to go to this team, but I think he could fit quite well, you know, for the Miami Heat. A team that like cuts and passes very precisely and Bam could sort of take the toughest defensive assignments as needed and Chet can be this weak side menace providing all this defensive value. So if he were to end up on a team like that, I might all of a sudden be more bullish on his future than Jabari's. But if he ends up on a team that doesn't happen to have someone as good as Bam playing next to him, where it's he's playing with more of an offensively tilted power forward, and he's really expected to be the defensive anchor and the main defensive guy in any series, sooner or later he's going to run into series that really give him problems. And I think it's tougher to find a four who can play with Chet to accentuate his strengths than it is to find the other pieces to a, a like real contender with Jabari because his fit is so smooth. That's, that's why I have it where it is. But they're all in the same tier, obviously subject to new information, but that is my theory on him right now. You said that so eloquently, so brilliantly, Chuck. I, that, that was a great summary of the top three race right now. It kind of makes me want to think we did this at the beginning of the podcast, not necessarily <laughs> on, on the back end of, of such a long show. Cause I, I think it's important to clarify this race in, in your mind, as well as for me to kind of give clarity to where, where I'm at on this podcast. And I tried to do that as best as I could with my latest big board update pod, but I'll, I'll, I'll make the case again here. I agree with you for, for a lot of the same reasons. So Jabari Smith, when you talk about his universal fit around the league, every single team is looking for Jabari Smith. Every single team could also be looking for a Chet Holmgren. That's probably the only area where you and I slightly disagree. I think Chet is also one of those more malleable types of players to have in a bunch of different lineups, although we do agree about the point where he shouldn't be a full-time five, but Jabari Smith, Jabari Smith's fit across the league. Like you, you, you don't question it. He's, he's your prototypical stretch, stretch four who can also defend in a variety of ways. He's maybe not the best pure shot blocker, but he is a very good rim deterrent to keep using that popular phrase that hell, I think I use it now, like every podcast, it's, it's such a good phrase, <laughs> but his offensive input, the thing about Jabari and the thing with the other three. So Paolo, his upside, his his high end comp of comps is somebody like Carmelo Anthony or it's Jabari Parker before any of this injury BS happened and Jabari Parker was on the type of trajectory that he was. Mm -hmm. That's a player that you need to take in the top three. And you, you don't think twice about taking him in the top three. But in the conversation of one or two, against these two other unicorns, that's a different story. Paolo brings an important thing to the table, which is potential three-level scoring versatility. And to, 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 to some level of credibility, he, he, he is a decent passer for what yeah. he is as well when he's willing to do it. But everything else you want to break down about his game, he doesn't bring enough other things to the table at as high of a level as what his scoring could end up being and I'm not even as fully confident in his scoring. Like he's not as technically sound 
of a scorer. Like, it's dangerous to use a name like Carmelo Anthony because Carmelo Anthony was one of the best players we have in NBA history at sizing somebody up, figuring out what you need to do to take them down, and then beating you no matter what you try to do to him. He will size you up. He will put you in the triple threat. No matter where he is on the floor, he always has an answer for what you're going to do. Paolo is not nearly at that level. For as talented as he is, he is not that same kind of, I'm going to size up no matter who I have player, and I'm going to figure out how to beat you. Maybe part of that is he just doesn't see the game in that same way that somebody like Melo does. I know he he's, he's continued to show a lack of aggression at getting to the basket more often than not when he absolutely can take his man that he has off the dribble and beat them to the basket, or even if his man plays a smart enough angle to cut him off to the basket, Paolo's still strong enough to plow through that person and still finish around the basket or at the very least draw a foul. He just doesn't do that. He goes to these wonky mid-range type of fallaway jumpers that we know just watching it, they're not going to go in. So it's like, why don't you try and take a different approach? And that was one of the common criticisms that we had about Paolo coming into the year. It's a fixable thing, but it's also it, – it, it's a mental thing. He has to be mentally wired to want to consistently get downhill and attack the basket. If that changes, then maybe his scoring becomes so much of a plus that we can have a different conversation down the road. But I don't think that's going to happen, happen to vault him ahead of those other two guys. Now, the race between Jabari and Chet is – much more interesting because Chet, we know what his upside can be. It can be this crazy freakish unicorn type of talent who is doing everything he's doing defensively. He is a really smart passer of the basketball. He's, he's far and away, in my opinion, the best passer out of the three. Um, but the shot making off the dribble, the shot making from three, the shot making from the perimeter overall combined with the interior finishing, like that whole offensive package still has to come together for him. And we haven't seen the evidence to definitively say that it's going to come together for him in the NBA. And then you, you can throw in some of the physical concerns about him finishing at that high of a level as he is in college around the basket in the NBA against the size he's going to go up against. I'm not as concerned about his body as some other people are. I've kind of let that part of the argument slide off, and I just I don't want to talk about it a lot anymore. But <laughs> but Chet is still a very unique prospect. He's not out of the race for number one by, by any stretch of the imagination. But why I have Jabari number one. Jab I didn't know Jabari could do some of the things that he has done already at Auburn from a shot-making perspective. He intrigued me preseason because uh, when you go back and watch some of the high school tape, you'd have these really nice fallaway jump shots out of the post. And you look at you look at the mechanics on the shot, and you look at touch, you look at how the ball's coming off his fingertips and what happens when it actually gets on the rim. Is it a smooth make? Is it rattling around? He would have these really smooth makes off of some of those post fadeaway types of shots where you go, okay, this is really interesting. Is he just going to be this back-to-the-basket type of big who maybe if he learns how to better face up, attack somebody off the bounce. If he can hit some of these fallaway shots, which is actually face his man up and size them up, this can be an intriguing player. He's like making three-point shots off the dribble at, at 6'10", at, at the size that he has. And it's just like, okay, if you can do this, and I didn't even know you could do this, what the hell else are you going to be able to do in three years? 
right. to, down the road. And you outlined the perfect argument about because he's such a perfect fit everywhere, he's going to get minutes to continue to develop on an NBA court no matter where he goes. That's perfect. That's exactly how you should sum up that developmental argument. This guy is going to get better no matter where he goes. And for that reason, the fact that you can start to piece together what Chet can be if he reaches his apex. I can't piece together yet what Jabari Smith could be if he reaches his apex. I don't know the answer to that question. And it's because I don't know the answer to that question. That's <laughs> why I would take him number one overall. I don't know if you agree with that last assessment, if you disagree, but that's why I have him number one ahead of those other two. Yeah. My, my only, uh, I think it's a, a, a great case. My only disagreement with that very last part about his apex is that he is at, I think he's at like 16 and 8, 16 and 7 right now, thereabouts for Auburn, um, in part because Auburn has multiple guards who like to, and I, I mean, it's not an indictment, but they like to get their own shot as, as well. Uh, Wendell Green and I think Katie Johnson, you know, those are sort of, they are tough physical downhill guards who sop up some usage away from him. But, as I was saying earlier about that St. Louis game, they won that game going to a pick and roll with Walker Kessler and having Jabari in the corner. That that was the best version of their offense that I have seen. So, it is hard to, like, even though he's super young, there is part of me that's like, if this guy's a future dominant NBA scorer, then the best use of him in college should not be having him in the corner. He should be able to create a little bit better for himself inside the arc. And so that's that's where I come back to earth a little bit and where I think like it is, I'll say it's more likely than not, but I don't think that he's this um, complete fountain of potential because potential is there in production like you can find it if you look for it like Mobley who I think is a better prospect than any of these guys last year um the even though he didn't play with the best guards he was always the best player on the floor really in any game he played um, he made that USC team better than it had any right to be. All the advanced metrics favored him um, as the best player in the country. And you could see how easily he moved and how his playmaking opened up different things for that team. You could see his vision and you could see how light his touch was in the mid-range. So you knew that inside the arc, this guy was going to be dangerous. Jabari hasn't shown that stuff yet. Um, I will probably solidify him as a number one option if he if he does take steps in that direction mm -hmm. this year. Um, but if his main value is going to be in shooting threes, and he's going to shoot them very well, but if it's going to be in shooting threes and playing defense, I still may end up with him number one, but I'm not going to say that he was a better pick than either Cunningham or Mobley or going the year before that, a better pick than LaMelo, um, maybe comparable to Anthony Edwards or the year before that, a better pick than Zion or, you know, maybe Ja 
or before that, a better pick than um, Luca. Like, I don't think he's going to stack up crazily well relative to other number one overall picks, is my point. But uh, you can't rule it out, though. You can't. Yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, certainly not gonna rule it out right now. I yep. just, I wanna see what other steps that he takes. Cause all of those guys yep. that I mentioned inside the arc were terrors that constantly put the defense on their heels. And it's just, it's a new form to see that be primarily behind the three-point line. And I would be a little skeptical of that. But I mean, I mean having said that, I have him number one. So <laughs> I, I'm not that skeptical. We're, 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 we're an age in basketball, Chuck, where not, nothing surprised me anymore. Not, literally nothing. Nothing's, I, I, I feel I, I know I haven't seen it all. I, I feel like I've seen enough to the point where you, you, you can make an argument that that outcome X can can happen in spite of you know whatever why I that any, anything can happen in, in my opinion anything can happen I'm not going to rule out anybody reaching a level that I didn't even think was possible because it apparently happens all the time when you want to talk about me and my crazy draft projections who, who who am I to say that somebody can't reach a ceiling higher than what I'm initially saying that it is so that's the fact that. It, and maybe it doesn't happen. Maybe you are right. Maybe it doesn't happen. But the fact that I can't come to a conclusion as to what's going to happen, at least I can't come to one in my mind compared to some of the other guys we can talk about in the top, that's why I'm going to have that player number one. And usually when I have that, usually when I do have that instinct about a player, that instinct generally turns out to be true. Like if you can do things on the court that – and not that this is the same type of player, but like a lot of people have questions about Shea Gilgis Alexander coming out of college and yep. he would do things on the court. I could not explain. I couldn't explain in words what the hell just <laughs> happened, but I knew that it, if I can't explain it, that doesn't mean it's not going to work. And usually most of the time, if it's that unique, it actually does work. It just looks different. And now Shea Gilgis Alexander is arguably one of the most complete scoring guards in the entire NBA. And I don't even know if I would have initially – I know I didn't initially project that. Like that – being that versatile of a scoring threat, that that is 100% meaningful and far and away past what I thought he was I, – I didn't think he was going to be a bad scorer, but I thought he would eventually find a little more balance between his scoring and his playmaking ability. Now he's just right that this outright number one option for Oklahoma City for the last few years, like I'm going to score the basketball no matter what the defense does to me. I'm going to figure out how to beat it. And he's become absolutely phenomenal, far and away better than, than what I thought he was going to be. And I was high on him in, in that draft class. So that's just my long-winded answer of saying, I don't know what's going to happen. But if I can't explain it, why not bet on it? So that's why I'm going to have Jabari Smith number one. But uh, Chuck, know, Sh Shea's going to be a great teammate to one of these three next year, probably. <laughs> my my uh, like the, the creeping thought that I have is that he's – they're gonna get one of them. Let's say it's Jabari, and then they're gonna they're gonna trade a, some or all of their war chests and end up with Victor Wembanyama the next year, and they'll be able to run out Giddy and Shea and Jabari and Wembanyama. But that's another it's for another day. They no, I, I think I think Chet Holmgren is the most Oklahoma City Thunder player that can go to them at this point. Yeah, so, and then like, think about him and Wembenyama as your four or five. <laughs> I mean, I'm Chet, just Chet, you, Chet, Wembenyama, Giddy, Poku. Like, let's just throw all of them on the court together at once, <laughs> and let's just see what happens. But Poku, <laughs> yeah, oh, man. yep, yep, yep. Chuck, this podcast was an absolute pleasure. This was 
incredible content. This is what we talked about. This is what happens when you and I get together for a podcast. It's going to go ridiculous lengths, but the content's going to be so good that you can't stop. Like I, I literally couldn't stop myself from talking to you. So thank you <laughs> so much for coming on as always. Where can everybody find you? How can they subscribe to your show? Because I, 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 I like listening to it every week. You are, like I said at the top, you're one of, you're one of the most trusted evaluators that I can go to in this space. And I know that you and I are going to break something down deep. We're going to have a good time doing it. And we're both going to learn something afterwards. Well, thanks, man. And likewise, the pleasure is all mine. I am um, at Chucking Darts on Twitter. The I guess that's the handle, but the title is Chucking Darts NBA Podcast. That's where you that's what you type in to find me on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or whatever. Um, hopefully uh, have some fun announcements before too, too long. I got my 100th episode that'll happen sometime in the next couple months. I'm trying to think about what will be uh, a fun way to sort of commemorate <laughs> that. And otherwise, man, I'm, I, I am on Twitter. Nate uh, usually retweets me. We have a, a, a very good uh, discussion whenever we find something to come together on. So uh, just be on the lookout. I'm sure I'll be on here again before too long. And I'm sure Nate will be on my podcast as well before too long. So thank you very much. Your 100th podcast just needs to be a YouTube video of you throwing darts at a dartboard. That's just all it needs <laughs> to do. We, we do that, then, then we've accomplished something great. <laughs> yeah man originally i had an idea that i would have a giant dartboard and i would somehow put all of my opinion but you know this is best laid plans if i can get out a podcast a week then i'm 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 patting myself on the back so as, as i i know i know how that feels man trust me but thank you all so much for listening if you haven't followed me on Twitter yet, please do so at Draft Deeper. We're creeping up on 2,000 followers. I, I would love to hit, hit that sometime soon, but also show your support to No Ceilings. Follow the account at No Ceilings NBA. Make sure you're subscribed to the Substack, No Ceilings.substack.com. We are pumping out content each and every day. Trust me, I'm not pumping out content each and every day, but that's why we have a team to, to do it because I, I, I'm with Chuck. If I accomplish a podcast and a piece in a week, I'm feeling pretty damn good about myself. But again, thank you all so much for the support. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast wherever you get your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. Tune in next Monday. I will be recording a podcast with Matt Babcock from Basketball News. I cannot wait to do some big board comparisons with him. I'm sure I'm going to bring up some similarly pointed topics as I did with Chuck. Matt's a great professional in the industry. I can't wait to just ask him some questions, get his insight on some of these guys. And then we'll be doing a big board comparisons pod per usual once a month with Stephen Gillespie over at Draft Capital. We'll be doing that next week as well. So definitely stay tuned for incredible content. Thank you all so much for listening. Hope you have a wonderful rest of your week.